Welcome to the Millerville Community Church podcast of our Sunday morning sermon series, where the Word of God is always the focus of our hearts and prayers. This live recording is made possible by the generous donation and support of our subscribers. If you would like to join the growing community of seekers and believers who support MCC podcasts, just go to our website, www.millervillechurch.org, and you can make your online donation anytime. If you have questions, suggestions, and feedback you would like to share with us, please use our email service at infomillavillechurch.org. And now, here is a message from Sunday morning at MCC. If we haven't had the pleasure of meeting yet, my name is Seth. I'm here with my lovely wife, Megan, and our daughter, who she just dropped off in the nursery, Elizabeth. Um, Megan, if you don't know, is John and Sandra's daughter, so I'm their son-in-law. Uh, I'm a pastor of worship ministries at uh, First Baptist Church in Medford, Oregon, and though I've only been doing that role for about three years, worship has been a massive part of my life. I've been leading worship from guitar since early high school, and my father's been a worship leader for 35 plus years. I literally grew up on stage. I was drumming for my dad when I was eight, my mom was playing keyboard, my sister was running sound, my brother was playing bass, we were like the Von Trapp family. We just travel around and lead worship wherever we were. Um, so I quite literally grew up on stage. I mean, when I was a baby, I was in the car seat next to my mom on the piano during worship practice and sometimes on Sunday morning. I just, I don't even know what it's like to show up to church on time. I'm here three hours early and one hour <laughs> after everybody else leaves, and that's just what I thought church was because that was my entire life. Um, I was invited up here by both John and Mike um, to come visit and get to know your worship team, um, to help out, meet with people individually, start building a relationship, see how I can be a blessing to your team here um, with the experience and knowledge that I've had and that the Lord has blessed me with, and being able to lead worship for so many years considering I'm only 28. Um, And it's been an amazing week getting to know your worship team. You have a wonderful worship team full of amazing people who love the Lord, who are talented, and um, it's a real privilege for me. I'm blessed to come up here and get to know the people uh, that serve you guys here in worship. We're going to talk about worship because, well, that's my full-time job, and that's what John invited me up here to talk about. Are you familiar with the term worship wars? Have you heard of that term before? It's, It's been a pretty pervasive theme over the last 50 to 60 years in most churches and most Western developed countries. And if you don't know exactly what it is, it's basically contemporary versus traditional. It's 400-year-old hymns versus modern praise choruses that follow the patterns of most secular songs today. It's organ and choir versus electric guitar and drums. And it's caused both major church splits and issues and has birthed some of the largest church movements we've ever seen in the world, from Bethel, Hillsong, Elevation Worship, Vineyard, Maranatha. There's been a lot of different movements. Now, the validity and the theological soundness of some of those is to be determined, but it's been very influential, um, to say the least. While the word war might seem a little bit harsh, it actually pretty accurately conveys the passion and the intensity with which the people care about this issue. And rightly so, both sides of the debate are filled with real, solid believers who love the Lord and desire to honor and serve Him in the best way that they can. That's what this is all about. And they're all seeking to answer a very important fundamental question. How does God want us 
to worship him. If you spend any time reading the Old Testament, you'll quickly realize that God cares deeply about how his people worship him. The last 15 chapters of Exodus, it's something like 35 pages, are all instruction, detailed instruction, on the conduct of worship, how to do sacrifices, how the tabernacle or their church is to be built, what colors to use, what materials. And most of Leviticus and Deuteronomy are more of the same. Really, it's how do we conduct worship that is honorable and holy to the Lord? How do we present ourselves as holy before the Lord? And in the New Testament, there's really not very much in comparison related to instruction on how we are to worship now on this side of Christ's resurrection. We have the Old Testament. There's chapters and chapters and chapters, but there's really only little snippets in the New Testament. So does God still care then how he's worshipped? Obviously, we know from Scripture that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So I pose this question to you this morning. How does God want you to worship him? To find out, turn with me to John 4. We're going to be doing a lot of flipping through Scripture today. So this most recent battle over worship styles is really only the latest installment in this worship war. Did you know that there was another worship war going on over 2,700 years ago? Uh, It was between the Jews and the Samaritans, and it had been going on for over 700 years by the time that Jesus was born and came into the picture. And we're going to step into the middle of the account with Jesus and the Samaritan woman as he and his disciples are on their way from Judea to Galilee. I think you mostly know that story pretty well, um, but there's some really interesting insights into worship in there, although most of the time we focus on the conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman and bringing out the, you've had five husbands and the one you live with is not your own now, and and there's so much more in that story. We're just going to focus in on one little portion. So we're going to start in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Spirit and truth, that's a bit vague, Jesus. What does he mean by this kind of cryptic phrase, Christianese, spirit and truth, ooh, But what practically does that mean? And he doesn't even offer any more explanation. Literally, the the conversation diverges at this point. The disciples show up. They go, why are you talking to this woman? And then it just totally goes on. So Jesus just drops this bomb full of little nuggets of what truth is about for us as on this side of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he just leaves it at that. So we're going to search all over scripture this morning to find out what he's talking about. So the two main things here are worshiping in spirit and truth, and I'm going to start off with truth. Jesus says in verse 22 that they worship what they do not know, or another way of saying they don't know the truth about God, Yahweh, who they think they are worshiping. To really understand what's going on in this conversation, we need a little bit of backstory. So we're going to go all the way back to 2 Kings chapter 17. We're going to see how this all started. 
chapter, Second uh, Kings chapter 17, starting in verse 24. And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, the nations that you have carried away, that's the Israelites, and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them. And behold, they are killing them because they do not know the law of the God of the land. Pay attention to that phrase there, the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there and let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. There's that little phrase again. So one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. So they took an Israelite priest that they had they had already moved all of the Israelites out of the area, moved different nations in. They realized, oh, we need somebody who understands the God of the land. And then verse 29, but every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities in which they had lived. And then skip down to verse 33. So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried. So a displaced Israelite priest are sent back to Samaria to teach people the law of the God of the land. And I'm not sure what they actually taught because we know the Ten Commandments are the very first one is you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any idols. So I'm not sure what they really taught. But the king of Assyria here says the law of the God of the land because he's assuming that there's just another little local little G-God who happens to be sending lions on the people who have moved here because they don't worship him in the right way. And uh, they thought he was relegated to just a geographic region. And there was a temple on Mount Gerizim that they worshipped the Lord at, but they also had all these other Assyrian pagan idols that they put in. And so the Jews who worship in Jerusalem hate the Samaritans because this has been going on for 700 years. They are half-breeds, they're a mix of Samaritan, a mix of Jew, a mix of a whole bunch of other nations, and they claim to worship Yahweh, but they don't follow his commandments. And we see this all the time in modern Christianity, unfortunately, this Samaritanism, this pick-and-choose religion where you can believe what you want and the things that are frustrating and the things that make you uncomfortable, you just ignore. Let's appease this little God that we think is just small so that the lions don't attack us and we can carry on our own way. I like that God forgives my sin, but I don't like that he means that I have to also go forgive others, so I'm just going to kind of ignore that. I want fire insurance to avoid hell, but I don't want to actually submit my life to God's will and actually listen to what he says. When you act like this, you're basically treating God like a cosmic vending machine, where you put your prayer or your act of service in like a token And you expect to receive blessing in return. If you believe God is like that, you don't really know him. You don't know the truth. When Jesus says, you worship what you do not know, he's making it clear that knowing God relationally and in truth is crucial in order to be able to worship him. You will only be able to worship God to the degree that you know him. Say that again, it's super important. You will only be able to worship God to the degree that you know him. 
And in some ways, it's just like any other human relationship. Those of you who are married, you know that the longer you've been married and the better that you get to know your spouse, the more capable you are of loving and serving them. My wife's biggest love language is words of affirmation. And when we first got married, I cared so much about doing acts of service for her because that was the way that I felt I could best express my love for her, doing the dishes for her, getting things cleaned up beforehand, making her coffee when she got up, and all those things. And I figured that that was the best way to show love for her. The problem is, is when she would get home from work when we were first married uh, and the kitchen wasn't clean, the first words out of my mouth were, sorry the dishes aren't done. Not, welcome home, honey. I missed you. I love you. I'm glad you're here. It was, sorry the dishes aren't done. Sorry I didn't do this thing for you. Sorry I didn't serve you in this way. In my mind, I had thought that she cared about how clean the kitchen was a lot more than she actually did. And it really, it revealed, oh, she still cares, but not as much as I thought. (laughs) She's still happier when the kitchen's clean, believe me. (laughs) But it revealed that I had a lack of knowledge of her character and how to love her best as her husband. If I never tell her with my words the way that she feels love the best, how I love her, should I be surprised when she's not feeling loved? Regardless of how much I feel inside for her, if I'm not actually able to communicate that effectively, then what good is that? So I ask you, do you know the God that you worship? And not just facts and information about God. Facts and information do little on their own. Do you know the character of God? Do you know the nature of God? Do you know what he hates? Do you know what he loves? Do you know what ignites his rage? Do you know what fills him with delight, his attitudes, his mannerisms, the way he interacts with us? Well, we're going to find out right now what you believe. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 34. This is one of my favorite little passages in all of scripture. Exodus 34, starting in verse 5. This is one of the first places in Scripture, it might be the first place, I didn't double check, where we actually get the Lord's own words describing his character. And it's amazing what he has to say here. So we're going to start in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him. This is Moses up on Mount Sinai. And proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. That was a lot of amazing, beautiful, glorious attributes about God. But how often do we not believe them? Do you really believe that he is merciful and gracious and slow to anger? Or are you like a little kid who did something bad and mom says, wait till dad gets home? Do you really believe that he is abounding in steadfast love or do you try to please him with good deeds that outweigh your sin and somehow try to make him happy again? I used to do this. I would, I would sin and I would specifically not repent so that I could feel the weight of my sin. 
my own penance. And I had to make him happy with me somehow. I had to make the good outweigh the bad. Do you really believe he is faithful? Or when that medical bill shows up in the mailbox, or the rain isn't falling on your growing crops, or the biopsy comes back positive for cancer, do you panic and feel the beads of sweat dripping down your neck and your forehead? Do you really believe he forgives sins, or are you trying to do more good things than bad in order to help your salvation along? I could go on with all of these attributes of God in so many ways. The point is that every one of us has some sort of false belief of who God is, probably multiple, and they hinder our worship because we think God is something that he is not, and we're now worshiping what we do not know. If I come to God and I say, Lord, I'm sorry, I'm going to start doing better, and please, please accept me, we don't even understand him, and we aren't even really communicating with him. I mean, what kind of person is going to rejoice and run freely into the arms of the Father they think is waiting to punish them for what they have done? I don't know that any of you would show up here on Sunday if that was how God treated us. That when we walk in the door, we get the number of lashings based on the sin that we committed that week. And then if we sing enough songs and we sing them vibrantly enough and loudly enough and raise our hands high enough, that then he will accept us. Look at Moses' response in verse 8. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Moses knew God. He believed all of those things that God said he was. When Jesus tells the Samaritan woman that true worshipers will worship in truth, they are not worshipping a God they know about. They're worshipping a God they know relationally. And we, on this side of the resurrection have the privilege of knowing God in a way that few have been able to in the entire history of the world, except for really the last 2,000 years. That's why it's so important that this conversation back in John ends the way it does. I didn't read verse 25, but I'm going to read it now. After this, these profound statements that Jesus makes about worship, verse 25 says, The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to him, I who speak to you am he. The Christ has come. Truth is here. Uh, Flip a few pages over to John 14, and we have one of Jesus' most famous and well-known statements about himself in Scripture. And um, Beth did an amazing job covering this last week, so I'm not going to go into super detail. But starting in verse 6 of chapter 14, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. He goes on to say, whoever has seen me, Jesus, has seen the Father. Everything that we need to know about God the Father, relationally, is right here in this book and in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Peter chapter 1 that we have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. There is no better way to know the God you worship than seeing his character revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. His forgiveness, his mercy, his patience, his zealousness for the holiness of God when he's throwing temple tables because the temple is being defiled and worship is being defiled. His sacrificial love that died for us on the cross that we may have life. 
This is how we know the truth. We know Jesus. And we worship God by believing the truth with our mind and corporately by singing the truth together accurately. And why do we sing? If truth on its own is so important, isn't knowing it in our heads enough? Well, there's actually quite a lot of reasons why we sing. I'm going to go over a few of them. One, we as humans with bodies are literally wired and created to respond to music um, emotionally, psychologically. They've done studies where people listen to music and they scan their brains, and there's a dopamine release in your brain that's similar to the level of eating candy and doing drugs, believe it or not, um, when you listen to music. So music literally helps us respond emotionally to the truths that we are singing in these worship songs. Another thing that's amazing about worship and singing is that music hides his word on our hearts. Psalm 119, 10 and 11, your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. When we sing scripture, when we sing these songs that are based on scripture, it's an amazing way to memorize the truths of God that they may be recalled to mind. Now it's not memorizing the verse word for word, but you're memorizing the character of God, the truth and the nature of God. And sometimes those songs come to mind so much easier than trying to remember that verse and that reference and getting the words just right. In the middle of the week, I don't know how many times I've been struggling with something or wrestling with something or the enemy attacks and a song comes to mind and I can sing that song and I can just rest in knowing that there is truth there that I can remember because I've rehearsed it on Sunday. I've memorized these songs. They've been set to memory. And it's not word for word memorization, but is it not still good to remember that Christ is the solid rock on which we stand? All other ground is sinking sand. And a little side note, that's why it's really important about what we sing and the content of the lyrics. There are a lot of worship songs on the radio right now that are theologically inaccurate. And I think you guys are a pretty discerning church and can understand that. But there are so many subtle little things that are starting to slip in and change people's perception about the character and the nature of God, and that could be dangerous. I try not to step on too many toes when I'm preaching, but a few. Uh, there is a newer song. It's released in the last couple of years. It's called Reckless Love, and I don't know what you believe about that song. It's got a great message overall that he pursues us relentlessly. He pursues after us. He leaves the 99 to find the one. It's a good message that's mostly scriptural, but that one word, reckless, is really inaccurate. If you look at the definition for reckless, it's haphazard, it's without care. Um, actually, there's some other places, I can't remember where they are, in the Old Testament where at least the ESV translation uses the word reckless, and every time it uses the word reckless, it also follows with foolish men. So the word reckless is not a good word to describe God. I know what the songwriter is trying to convey, and he's maybe being poetic and just trying to, but that's, we got to be careful about what we're saying because that can start to change how we understand the nature and the character and the truths about God. There was another song, uh, Created Me a Clean Heart. That's a, what is that, a 90s song? Been around for a while, 80s, yeah, before I was around. Um, <laughs> And one of the worship leaders at my church wanted to kind of bring it back and start doing it, and he did it a couple times, and uh, one of our staff members went, you know that song is Old Testament theology, right? And I went and looked it up, and it's coming out of Psalm 51, and it's after David sins with Bathsheba, and 
the Lord is literally threatening to take his spirit away like he took it away from Saul. And David is crying out, please don't take away your Holy Spirit from me. That's even in the chorus of the song. And take not your Holy Spirit from me, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. That's Old Testament theology. That's Old Covenant. We don't sing that song anymore because we have a new covenant. Covenant. And our salvation is secure. The Holy Spirit cannot be ripped from us like it could in the Old Testament. So even though technically that song is from the Bible, it's Old Covenant theology, and we need to be careful about those things. And lastly, though this is probably the most important one, we sing because Scripture commands it. Uh, I don't even know if I can pick one psalm that says this. There's so many that do, but I'm just going to go to one that I have. I think there's like 65 or 70 different commands in the Psalms to sing in some form. Here's Psalm 33, verses 1 through 3. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise benefits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. If all of Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for us, for teaching, correction, training in righteousness, then we need to obey. And Psalm says to sing with instruments, with loud voices, sing and lift up the name of Jesus. So that's worshiping in truth. How then do we worship in spirit? Jesus says you worship in spirit and truth. Well, as is common with Jesus, there's multiple layers of meaning to what he's saying in spirit. Let's continue on with the conversation with the Samaritan woman. In verse 24, chapter 4, Jesus says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. He's referring to the fact that God doesn't have a physical body that exists materially. We know from scripture that he's omnipresent, he's everywhere, he's all-knowing, but in the Old Testament, his presence would clearly rest in one location, on the tabernacle and the holy of holies, and you went to worship God at the location where his presence was manifest. But when Jesus died on the cross, that temple veil was torn in two, the holy of holies was now a place that everybody could access for those who believe in God and come into his presence. That's what Jesus is saying to the Samaritan woman in verse 21 when he says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He's foreshadowing his death and how that's going to open the temple veil to be able to worship wherever we are. No longer do worshipers need to go to the temple because the Holy Spirit now dwells inside of all believers. It's not in one location. And what was once distant is now closer to us than anything. And it's this Holy Spirit that enables us to worship deeply and fully and rightly and in truth and anywhere. And we can see this really quickly in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who can know a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we, this is incredibly important and profound, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. 
The only reason we can understand any of that truth that I just went over in the first section is because of the Holy Spirit inside us, enabling us to understand and revealing the truth to us. And we have this truth always accessible to be able to worship him wherever we are. But when Jesus told the Samaritan woman that true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth, he was saying so much more than simply, no longer do we need to worship in one particular location. And it's also so much more than just about singing. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Paul says something profound here about worship. Paul has spent the last 11 chapters laying out the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans is probably one of the most robust um, defenses of the gospel that we have in the New Testament, and it's amazing, and it's thick, and it's heady about how we're dead in our trespasses and sins, how we could not save ourselves, how Christ has made us alive, and the last five chapters of Romans are the so what. It's the how do we live in the light of the truth of the last 11 chapters of the gospel, and he starts off the passage of these five chapters with this statement, starting in chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's interesting, there's nothing in that verse about attending church or reading your Bible or even singing, and yet Paul uses the word worship quite intentionally. But he says spiritual worship, which is a little bit hard to grasp. What is he saying spiritual worship is? Well, look there at the middle of the verse. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You who have been Christians for a while have probably heard this phrase before, and it may be just a little bit of Christianese. Oh yeah, I give my tithe, and I give my 10%, and I attend church on Sunday, and even Wednesday night, and, and I signed up for the children's thing because it's a good thing to do, and Heather talked a lot about it, so I probably should. <laughs> but what does it really mean to present your body as a living sacrifice? That phrase doesn't make sense. A living sacrifice. When you sacrifice something, it's dead. So how can you be a living sacrifice? Well, if you want the long version, I suggest you just read the last five chapters of Romans because that gives you a really detailed rundown of what it looks like to be a living sacrifice. It's uh, outdoing one another to show honor, blessing those who persecute you, not repaying evil for evil. There's a massive list. But for the sake of time this morning, there's an excellent overview in the 12th chapter of Hebrews that we're going to go look at. So turn with me there to the very end of chapter 12 of Hebrews. Hope you guys all had your sword drill fingers ready. I do a lot of scripture turning. <laughs> So Hebrews chapter 12, the very last verse, verse 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That's an interesting phrase there. Let us offer to God acceptable worship. That's what we're talking about this morning. How does God want me? How does God want you to worship him? What is acceptable worship? It goes into chapter 13, and remember, there's no chapter breaks in the original manuscript. This is a continuous thought. What is acceptable worship? 13, verse 1. 
Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among you, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Seven, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And then jumping down to verse 15, through him, that is Jesus Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. All of these sacrifices I just talked about are acceptable worship, worshiping in spirit to God. Spiritual worship is truth acted upon. It's when you do something about the truth that you sing, the truth that you claim to believe. It's knowing and experiencing the love of Christ that he has for you and being moved by the Spirit to show that love to other people in practical and tangible ways, generally that cost you something. It means we're not only to worship when we're at church and doing churchy things with churchy people. It's when your jerk neighbor is behind on his cutting and you have some free time so you go over to help harvest even though he hates you and you're not too fond of him. That's worship. When you give your time, your energy, your resources to help those less fortunate than yourselves, that's worship. And how do we know this? Jesus makes it really clear in Matthew 25 where he talks about his second coming and the final judgment on all mankind when all wrongs will be made right, all accounts will be equalized. Let's turn there, Matthew chapter 25. I'm not sure how long I'll read, but I'll, go, I'll start at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from the other as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous, oh, where is it? there we are. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. When you humble yourself and you serve those around you, meeting needs, acting on the truth of who, who God is and reflecting the character and the nature of God, you are literally serving the Lord directly. All of these acts are spiritual worship. To wrap it up, believe it or not, I'm going to drill down a little bit further. 
and make it a little bit more personal. When Jesus says that true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth, he's saying more than even facts and actions. Often in the Bible, the word spirit and truth can be interchanged with heart and mind. And Jesus is saying that true worship engages both the heart and the mind. We must engage God with our minds as we study his word, as we grow to know his character, we grow in the knowledge of who Jesus Christ is and how he reveals the character and the nature of God to us. At the same time, we must engage God with our hearts as the fullness of the Holy Spirit is in our lives, stirring us to be passionate worshipers with emotion, with feeling that is based on the truth of Christ, that responds to the truth of Christ. Do I have time? I think I do. One of my, we went in Romans 12, just at the very, just before Romans 12, I'm going to turn there, you don't necessarily have to. Um, the very end of Romans 11, I was talking about how Paul was just going through 11 chapters of thick, dense theology about the reality of the gospel. And at the very, very end of Romans chapter 11, right before he transitions, there's this really interesting ending that he writes. Verse 33 of Romans chapter 11. I mean, you've got 11 chapters of dense theology, and all of a sudden he goes, Oh, the depths and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then he launches off into what is spiritual worship. Paul is writing out the gospel, and at the end of his writing out the gospel in those 11 chapters, he is overcome by the Spirit, by the reality of what Christ has done, and it moves him to suddenly become a psalmist, and literally, even in most of your Bibles, they put out those last two phrases. Some of those are from Isaiah and from some other prophets, but they literally put those out as a psalm-like structure, because all of a sudden, he launches into this mini little poem at the end of this dense thick theology. That's him responding by the Spirit to the truth of the gospel. I love it. It's amazing. And it's really important that we have both spirit and truth. It's really important that Jesus says spirit and truth. One without the other is incomplete and dangerous. One well-known theologian, A.W. Tozer, writes, we cannot worship in the spirit alone, for the spirit without truth is helpless. We cannot worship in truth alone, for that would be theology without fire love that. Theology without fire. And we see, we have examples of this all over the world today, all throughout scripture, of the danger of not having both spirit and truth. When you worship without truth, but you have spirit, it gets dangerous. How many of you have seen that latest article about that Hillsong worship leader that recently renounced his faith, or at the very least said he's on very, very shaky ground and None of the Christians are answering all these difficult questions, which are actually really simple questions that apologists have answered for generations and years. I mean, he's written a lot of worship songs that some of you have sang in this church. They've been played on the radio for the last 15 years. That's the reality of spirit without truth when it's all about the emotion, when it's all about the experience, when it's all about the filling of the Holy Spirit and this grand mountaintop experience, and it's not actually founded in truth. And when you have truth without spirit, it's dead. It's dull. Jesus chastises the Pharisees in Matthew 15 saying, you hypocrites, 
Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching the doctrines, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In vain do they worship me, their hearts are far from me. The Pharisees were passionate about the truth, so much so that they made like a thousand twenty-four other laws to try to make sure they kept the original ten and then Deuteronomy and Leviticus and all these other laws. And they didn't actually care about knowing the heart of the God behind the laws or why the laws were there in the first place that we may know God. And there are so many churches like this all across the world that are dead and dull with Christians who know the do's and the don'ts and they have a gospel of morality, but they do not have a gospel of truth. They have taken the laws and they have applied them as the way to please God when really the laws are just revealing the character and nature of God that we may worship him fully and completely. Jesus tells the Samaritan woman that the hour is here now when the worshipers, the true worshipers, will worship in spirit and truth. And the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Are you one of them? Do you know the Lord? Do you love and serve as Jesus did? Are you one of the true worshipers that the Father is seeking? I hope and I pray and I plead that you are. And if you're not, I invite you to come down and get prayer from the elders, from myself. I'll be up here as well. Know the Lord. Seek the Lord. Love the Lord, his character, his nature, his attributes. Know that he loves you so so much. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, that your truth, your whole truth is available to us. There is not a mysterious truth that we have to go find in some cult or some other phenomenon. Your entire truth is within Jesus Christ and within the Bible that we hold in our lap. We thank you that that truth moves us to respond in worship through the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would empower us to worship as never before, that we would seek after you, that we would lay down our burdens, that we would carve out the beliefs that are not of you, that your Holy Spirit would do a work in us, slowly making us more like yourself, taking out the lies and putting in your truth. We love you, Lord. It's in his name we pray. You'll find a warm, relaxed atmosphere at MCC. We love worship and music here. It is our desire to direct people to the Lord Jesus Christ, the source of all life, hope, and true transformation. Our Sunday service starts at 10.30 a.m. and runs till noonish. Coffee and snacks are served. Children's church and child care are available.